You're listening to the Bravehearted Voices podcast. In this podcast, we feature sermons that deeply stir us toward Jesus Christ and living fully for His glory. As you listen to this powerful collection of communicators from yesteryear, it is our desire that you be stirred to live a life fully given to Jesus Christ and discover a Christianity that actually works. I am to speak tonight on the holiness of God, and I want to read some passages. Exodus 15, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? Job 15, Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints, yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. Job 25, Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not, yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm, and the son of man which is a worm. Psalm 22, Thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Isaiah 6.3, one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They say that when Leonardo da Vinci painted his famous Last Supper, that he had little difficulty with any of it except the faces. Then he painted the faces in without too much trouble, except one. He did not feel himself worthy to paint the face of Jesus. He held off and kept holding off, unwilling to approach it, but knowing he must. And then in the impulsive carelessness of despair, he just painted it quickly and let it go. There's no use, he said, I can't paint him. In speaking on the holiness of God, I feel very much the same way. This last week, I rather suffered through this and wondered why today and tonight I was able to get around it all, but I think that same sense of despair is on my heart. There isn't any use for anybody to try it. If it's an orator, he can play his oratorical harp, but it sounds tinny and unreal, and when he's through, you've listened to music, but you haven't seen God. I suppose that the hardest thing about God to comprehend is his infinitude. I know that intellectually that's the hardest thing to grasp. But you can talk about the infinitude of God and not feel yourself a worm. But when you talk about the holiness of God, you have not only the problem of an intellectual grasp, but you have a sense of 
personal vileness, which is almost too much to bear. Now, the reason for this is that we are fallen beings. We are fallen spiritually, morally, mentally, and physically. We are fallen in all the ways that men can fall, being what they are. And we are all, and each of us, born into a tainted world. We're born into a tainted world, and we learn impurity from our cradles. We nurse it in with our mother's milk, we breathe it in the very air. Our education deepens it, and our experience confirms it. Evil impurities everywhere, and everything is dirty. Even our whitest white is dingy gray, and our noblest heroes are soiled heroes, all of them. So we learn to excuse and to overlook and not to expect too much. We don't expect all truth from our teachers. And we don't expect all faithfulness from our politicians. And we quickly forgive them and when they lie to us and vote for them again. And we don't expect honesty from the merchants. And we don't expect complete trustworthiness from anybody. And we manage to get along in the world only by passing laws to protect ourselves from not only the criminal element, but from the best people there are, who might in the moment of temptation take advantage of us. So fallen man, being born in this kind of world, living here, breathing it in, it gets into his pores, it gets into his lungs, into his nerves, into his cells, until he is lost the ability to conceive of the holy. But I would speak of the holiness of God, or of the holy, or of the Holy One, and we cannot comprehend this, and we certainly cannot define it, because holiness means purity, but that isn't enough. Purity mean, it merely means that it's unmixed, there's nothing else in it. But that isn't enough. We talk of moral excellency, but that is inadequate, for we say, uh, to be morally excellent is to excel somebody else in moral character. But uh, about whom are we speaking? When we say that God is morally excellent, he excels somebody. Uh, who is it that he excels? The angels, the seraphim, I suppose, but that isn't still enough. We mean rectitude, we mean honor, we mean truth and righteousness, and we mean all of these uncreated and eternal. God was, is not now any holier than he ever was, for he being unchanging and unchangeable can never become holier 
than he is, and he never was holier than he is, and he'll never be any holier than now. And uh, it means self-existent, for he did not get his holiness from anyone, nor from anywhere. He did not go off into some vast, uh, infinitely distant realm and there absorb his holiness, but he is himself the holiness. He is the holy. He is the all-holy. He is the holy one. He is holiness itself beyond the power of thought to grasp or of word to express, beyond the power of all praise. Now, language can't express the holy, so God resorts to association and suggestion. He cannot say it outright because he would have to use words that we don't know the meaning of. And uh, we would then, of course, take the words he used and translate them downward into our terms. If he were to use a word describing his own holiness, we could not understand that word as he uttered it. He would have to translate it down into our unholiness. If he were to tell us how white he is, we would translate it into terms of dingy gray. So God cannot tell us by language so I say he uses association and suggestion by showing how it affects the unholy. Moses at the burning bush, there before the holy fiery presence, knelt down, took his shoes from off his feet, hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Then here is this 19th chapter of Exodus later, where Moses, the Lord, said unto him, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And the Lord said to Moses, Go unto the people, and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of the people, and thou shalt set bounds unto the people." Round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. For there will be a beast or man that shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. Moses went down, sanctified the people. You see, he did the best he could. He went down and tried to whiten up a little their dingy gray. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people trembled. Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder. Moses answered God, spake, and God answered him by a voice, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain. Moses went up, and the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze. And many of them perish. Now there was 
an effort on the part of God, all this trumpet, the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words and the fire and the smoke and the shaking of the mount, it was an effort for God to say, by suggestion and association, what he couldn't say in words. Now, there are two words for holy. There are more than two, but there are particularly two words for holy in the Old Bible, in the Hebrew Bible. And one word is used almost exclusively of God the Holy One. Rarely used ever of anything or person except God the Holy One. In that passage in Proverbs 9.10, the knowledge of the holy that I read in your hearing, where it says, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. This intrigued me. In fact, the book that I'm going to write on the attributes of God devotionally considered is to be called The Knowledge of the Holy. Well, I have been greatly fascinated by this, that it should occur in our Bible that this word, that we should have it in the abstract, the holy, rather than the holy one. Uh, and yet, the Jewish Bible says, the knowledge of the Holy One, and in 33 of Proverbs, that is 30, chapter 3rd verse, where it uses also the knowledge of the Holy, it says the knowledge of the Holy One, or the All-Holy. And uh, though the King James translators call this the knowledge of the Holy, they used exactly the same word more than 40 times and translated it the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. So obviously this is God. And yet there is a vagueness enough about it that the translators felt free to put this into an abstraction, to make it uh, abstract and call it the Holy. Now there's another word, and that's not used of God very often, I think it is not as high a word. It is used of created things often. It is something that, so to speak, is holy by contact or association with this other holy. That is, we hear of holy ground, and when it says this is holy ground, or holy Sabbath, or holy city, or holy habitation, or holy people, or holy works, or holy arm, it's not the same awesome, awful word that he uses when he says the Holy, or the Holy One. Now in the New Testament, and I have not read from the New Testament tonight, but in the New Testament, we have a word, of course, in the Greek word, and we have we talked there about God being holy, be ye holy, for I am holy. And I notice one thing about that Greek word, it is that a definition of it is, awful thing. Now think of that. Take and set that word thing in capital letters, the awful thing. That's one meaning of the word holy, the holy one. Now let's talk a little about the holy one and his creatures. For you see, the presence of this holy one allows only holy beings. In our humanistic day, our day of watered-down Christianity, 
our day of sentimental Christianity that blows its nose loudly and makes God into a poor, weak, weeping old man. In this awful day, the sense of the holy isn't upon the church. I was just talking with Brother McAfee. We're talking about Brother Matir being interested in European mission. Somebody else comes interested in the Hebrew is working with the Jews, somebody else working with the mountaineers, somebody else is concerned with, with the memorizing scripture, somebody else with foreign missions. And I said, well, everybody seems to have something that he feels is tremendously important, and maybe it could be that the constant uh, preaching that I do on the person of God, that I too should be seeing and only a, a part of the great truth, that there's more. But I said this, if you're going to be narrow, then I think we ought to be narrow on the right thing. And therefore, if I'm going to emphasize God and the holiness of God and the awful unapproachable quality that can be called that awful thing, that, that, that one, that holy, I say that I am going to, I think I'm on the right track. It isn't all, but it's something we've almost lost in our day. And the thing is important depending upon how much of it we've lost and how much of it we need. And we have lost the sense of the Holy One almost altogether. Take over in the book of Revelation, that seventh chapter. Look, it says that, uh, the seventh chapter, yes, the angels stood around about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts. They fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. And one of the elders answered, saying, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. He said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serving day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Now, there is God, there, is the, there are people in the presence of God, but they're there in the presence of God by, by not only by a technical redemption. You see what I worry about in this hour is that we're technically Christians and we can prove it. We can prove that we're Christians. We're Christians technically. And anybody can open and flip open a Greek lexicon and show you that you're a saint. But uh, I'm afraid of that kind of Christianity because if I haven't felt the sense of vileness, by contrast with that sense of unapproachable and indescribable holiness, I wonder if I have ever been hit hard enough to really repent. And if I don't repent, I wonder if I can believe. Now, we're told, just believe it, brother, just believe it. Now, come on, let me take your name and address. Here, what's, what's your name? Oh, yes, what church would you like to go to? Well, 
We have it all fixed up, my brethren, but I'm afraid our fathers knew God in a different manner than that. Bishop Usher used to go out by the river bank and kneel down by a log and repent his sins all Saturday afternoon. Though there probably wasn't a holier man in all the region round about. He felt how unutterably vile he was. He couldn't stand the dingy gray, which was the whitest thing he had, set over against the unapproachable, shining whiteness that was God. Go to the book of Isaiah, and you see the fiery burners there. With twain he covered his feet. There wasn't any in, in these creatures before the throne. There wasn't any of the flippancy that we see now. There wasn't any of the tendency to try to out-hope hope and be funnier than the clown. There was a sense of, of presence, and these holy creatures, for they were holy creatures, they covered their feet. Why? They covered their feet in modesty, and they covered their face in worship, and they used their wing, other wings to fly. These were the seraphim. They're called fiery burners. Then there's Ezekiel 1 and 10. And thee, they, we see there creatures coming out of a fire. Now, God speaks of himself often as fire. Our God is a consuming fire, it says, in Hebrews. And in Isaiah 33, these words, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? And this is sometimes used as a text. Who of you is going to go to hell? But my brethren, if you will read it in its context, this does not describe hell. This is not hell at all. And if you will go to almost any of the commentators, they will say, this is not hell, because the next passage says that he that has clean hands and a pure heart and doesn't lift up his soul under vanity and answers the question, what is this devouring fire? What is this everlasting burning? It is not hell, but the presence of God. Who among us shall dwell in the fiery burnings? Do you not know that if you were enabled to do it, fire can dwell with fire, and you can put the hot iron or the iron into the fire, and the iron can learn to live with the fire by absorbing the fire and beginning to glow in incandescent brightness in the fire. So we dwell in the fire. These creatures in Ezekiel came out of the fire having four faces, and they went straight ahead and they let down their wings to worship. And at the word of God's command, they leaped to do his will. These awesome holy creatures about which we know so little and about which we ought to know more. Then there was God when he spoke 
to Moses out of the bush. There was the God when he went with them in the pillar of fire. What was God saying? For it says in the 13th, I believe, is it of Exodus, where it says that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light by day and by night. And he took not away the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, that he might lead them in all their journeys. My friends, this was God dwelling there in that awesome fire. It was God dwelling there. And then when the tabernacle was made and the cherubim of gold overshadowed the mercy seat, what was it that came down between the cherubim wings? What was it that only one man could see and he once a year with blood? He did not dare go in. I wonder how many high priests ever looked at the Shekinah. I wonder that that high priest with all the protection of the atoning blood and the commandment of God. And the priest pulled away the veil, the great heavy veil, and took four men to part the great uh, tapestry they pulled apart. And this man went in trembling into the presence. I wonder if he ever dared to look at the fire. I wonder if being a Jew as he was, and worshiping the great God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel. I wonder if there was a high priest, one in twenty, that ever dared gaze on that fire. He was not told he couldn't, but I wonder if anybody ever dared do it. I noticed that the very seraphim covered their faces. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And John fell down when he saw the Savior and had to be raised up again almost from the dead. And every encounter with God has been such that man went flat down and went blind. Paul went blind on Damascus Road. What was the light that blinded them? Was it the cosmic ray coming down from some exploding body or from two... The colliding galaxies that tell us about, no, no. It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God that dwelt in the bush. The God that dwelt in the Shekinah between the presence, between the wings of the seraphim. And what was it that when they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as the rushing of a mighty wind, and a fire appeared and sat as a tongue of flame upon each one of them. What did that mean and what could it mean but that God was branding them in their foreheads with his fiery holiness to say your mind now? The church was born out of fire, my brethren. She was born out of fire as the Creatures in Ezekiel 1 came out of fire. The church was born out of fire. But we have gray ashes today. But we were to, we are to be men and women of fire. For that is our origin. And here are these last words, these words that tell us 
So God shall someday untune the sky, the heavens and the earth reserved are reserved under fire. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved. What fire is that? Is that to be the atomic fire, the fire of a hydrogen bomb? Don't allow yourself to be fooled by the scientists. Don't allow your spiritual perceptions and concepts to be dragged down to Oak Ridge. Don't think in terms of the scientists. That awesome fire out of which the seraphim moved, and that fire that dwelt between the cherubim and that blazing light that not fall flat, that's the same fire that shall dissolve the heaven and the earth. The awful presence of that holy thing, that awful thing. Don't, don't accuse me because I say thing, but because I know it's a person. He is God the Holy One of Israel. But there's something about him that is, that is awesome and awful, so that one of the definitions I repeat of the word that we have in the New Testament is the awful thing. Now the Holy One and the sinner, the Holy One and the sinner, oh man, oh man, sinner man. You're going to decide when you'll serve Christ. You're going to make the decision. You're going to push God around. You're going to accept Jesus or not accept Jesus. Receive him or not receive him. Obey him or not obey him. You're going to go proudly down the aisle with your chest out. You're going to lay your head on the pillow tonight with a heartbeat between you and eternity, and you're telling yourself, I'll decide this question. I'm a man of free will. God isn't coercing my will. No, no, but I have words for you. Listen, art thou not from everlasting, O Jehovah, my God, mine Holy One? Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Habakkuk 1, 12 and 13. Bravehearted Voices is brought to you by the Ministry of Deeper Christian in partnership with Ellerslie Discipleship. Our passion is to help you grow spiritually by providing Christ-centered resources, discipleship, and training in the Word of God and the victorious life of Christ. Our agenda is to bring back the stuff of old, the sort of Christianity that has lived out with the gusto of heaven and actually and practically works. For more, visit BraveheartedVoices.com.